Welcome to the Teamwork Advantage Podcast with Greg Gregory. Join us as Greg interviews powerful thought leaders and successful team and leadership experts from across the country on teamwork, leadership, and organizational culture. Now let's check in for this week's episode. Welcome to the Teamwork Advantage, a podcast that's dedicated to the growth and development of teamwork, leadership, and culture, or what I call the TLC of business. Hi, my name is Greg Gregory, certified speaking professional, founder, moderator, and host of the Teamwork Advantage. I'm excited to be with you today, bringing you another guest, talking to us about all kinds of things going on as we begin to go through, yet possibly beginning a third year in this crazy pandemic. Things are happening, change is happening, uh, leaders are happening, people are moving, resigning, changing jobs, uh, relocating, housing markets crazy, all kinds of things are happening. So all of that is going to be something we're going to talk about today. And I'm excited because about a year ago, we had our guest today on about a year ago, and he talked to us about performance objectives at that time. One of the more popular episodes of the Teamwork Advantage, that was episode number 38, by the way, if you get a chance to go back and you want to listen to Andrew. Um, Andrew Friedman is joining us again today, and he's been a lifelong advocate for maximizing human potential. Now, that's really a great phrase when we stop to think about it, maximizing human potential and transforming the workforce engagement and performance. For over 25 years, he's been the driving force in designing strategies that provide leaders a foundation, and the key word here is foundation, to translate individuals, teams, and organizational talent into tangible business growth. That's one of the things we've got to look at. Now, that being said, a lot of what we talk about on the Teamwork Advantage can be translated not just in business growth, but in human growth, personal growth in our own lives. Uh, you can use this in your volunteer groups, your civic associations along the line. As a managing partner of Shift Consulting, I have to be careful as I say that, Andrew has helped countless companies across diverse industries flourish through focus on strategy, flawless execution, change management, organizational design, development, executive leadership development, performance management, and revamping, revitalizing organizational systems and processes. That sounds like a mouthful all in itself. I'm excited to have joining us with us again today, Andrew Friedman from Baltimore, Maryland. Hi, Andrew. Hey, Greg, good to see you. But that wasn't that was a mouthful, too. But uh, and I, I love all that stuff that you mentioned. So thanks for the thanks for the prep. And I'm looking forward to the discussion with you today. Yeah, we're going to have a little bit of fun here today. Uh, again, welcome back. Uh, repeat guest on the Teamwork Advantage. Uh, we're glad you're joining us again. But I want to get into some things here today. Just refresh our folks. Um, if they haven't listened to the other episode, how did you get started in human uh, human behavior, human growth potential, things like that? Well, I've, I've always been a curious person. I remember this from when I was a kid. I remember some of it. My mother still to this day tells me how I was always asking questions, always curious, always talking to strangers, even though people say don't talk to strangers. <laughs> it tells you a little bit about me. And I've been fascinated by why people do the things they do, why they think the way that they do. And as I grew up and got into the business world, I was fascinated by why some people and some teams and some organizations really seem to be able to thrive regardless of any internal or out, uh, external circumstances. And so I really dedicated my life's work to that. It gets me extremely excited. 
Um, I was working in health and fitness, focusing on that industry, building and growing club operations for a number of years and got introduced into the management consulting space about 20 some years ago. And uh, that was my first entrance and I've stayed in it ever since. It's really fascinating. And I can hear the passion in your voice, which is always a great thing. And we touched on that our last time. I remember that very well. So let's talk a little bit about some thoughts here. The pandemic has definitely, let's use the word, changed the way we do business. And people are avoiding the term, the new normal. Things are absolutely changing in workplaces. People can't hire people because they can't find people in certain industries. Uh, new, new businesses are flourishing. And as you mentioned just now, I remember hearing Zig Ziglar talk oh, 30 some years ago about even in the depression, there were people who were thriving. So there's certain things about that that absolutely resonate with me. So things are changing. So what, do we, what are you seeing? What are some of the latest trends you're seeing in businesses today? Because let's face it, it's, it's definitely different. It, it is. And, and some things are changing and some things are the same that probably warrant a little bit of attention today as well. So um, one thing that isn't changing is that businesses need to understand their customers and they need to understand their employees. They need to really understand what's important to them, not think that they know, but really seek to understand so that they can create compelling value to attract, retain, and grow both of those customer sets, internal and external. What's changing is how, how those things happen. Work, you know, I had a, a, a client say when we were talking about, you know, remote work, hybrid work, all this, where does work? And what he said was, work isn't a place you go. Work is a thing you do, which was really interesting. It was the first time I heard it, it has, certainly hasn't been the last, and I've said it since, since then. And it really is about how people work, how they organize, so that they can still create the value. That's one of the biggest things that changed and many organizations are still wrestling with it. You can look at any news clipping. I saw this again today as we talk on Groundhog Day, February 2nd, 2022. And we saw that today Goldman Sachs released that they are bringing people back to the office. And they're one of the first in the financial services that has now again said people are coming back to the office for a certain number of days a week. They believe that's important to their culture where many other organizations still haven't. People are still trying to figure that out. So that's one of the biggest things, Greg, that I, I would say has, has changed and continues to change is where does work happen? How do people connect? How do we attract, grow, retain, develop relationships inside an organization where people are likely not going to be co-located, many of them, ever? And that, that's very interesting because some industries are doing that. Some absolutely need their people to be in an office or, or a workspace, um, and others absolutely don't. I am really noticing the number of, and technologies helping drive this, call centers and things of that nature are now being done. People are able to work remotely for that. So those folks may not ever go back into an office. Uh, am I right on the process there that we're going to see a very wide range depending on the industry? That is, yes, is the short answer. A little bit of context around that is really about, you know, we're talking a lot about re, you know, resignation or reconsideration or revitalization and, and one of reorganization. And one of the things that people 
need to do is reimagine because there are things that, you know, pre 2020, there were things that we held as absolute truths, like everybody must be in the same office in order to build culture. Well, what we've learned over the past, you know, two plus years is that's not necessarily so. It takes different effort. You got to think about different things. So, you know, our encouragement is really for leaders to reimagine what is possible. And there will be some businesses like manufacturing, as an example, that people would say, well, they've got to be there because they've got to produce the thing. We work with some companies that are in food services and other manufacturing you know, lines too. And many of their folks haven't left the workplace, but will it be that way forever? I don't know. You know when you get into things like Web 3.0, metaverse, virtual worlds, 3D printing, I'm not sure what is yeah. going to have to absolutely be true in manufacturing. And then you mentioned call centers, Greg. You know, with call centers, one of the big opportunities here that we've seen is rethink organizational design, rethink the application of technologies. And the big opportunity here for many companies is they can now find talent truly anywhere if they want to, as opposed to bringing people into regional or nationally you know, oriented call centers where they're co-located. You got people who are truly sitting at home in their fuzzy bunny slippers, taking calls and making calls. And so that really widens the potential to find great people. Absolutely. And you know, the one thing that uh, as you're talking about trying to reimagine and being able to do things, you know, um, the world of artificial intelligence is just absolutely growing astronomically. And yeah. I think that's going to play a large part in some industries as well. So let's, let's dive right into it. The term, and I don't remember the first time I heard this, but it was probably somewhere about eight months, maybe a year ago, the great resignation. We've had a guest on recently talking about it as the great reshuffle. Well, people are leaving, they are changing. Let's talk first about why people seem to be doing this. And then let's kind of get into it, what's happening. Yeah. The, so the first part first, <clears throat> why? Well, over the past couple of years, I think you know, what has happened is maybe an acceleration of or uh, shining a brighter light on people really taking stock of what's important in their life. And what many folks have realized, you know, the gift, if you can imagine this, that the pandemic brought us in the first year is people were saying things like, I forgot what it was like to have dinner with my family around the same table. I forgot what it was like to help my kid with homework. I forgot what it was like to go on a family vacation. I forgot how nice it was to actually sleep in my bed at home, you know, with my spouse, with my partner, or, you know, for single folks, just on their own, not worrying about getting on a plane, a train, like just the big race. And so people have really reconsidered what's really important in their life. And I know many folks, just as an example, who, who gave up, you know, big paychecks, um, high, le high leadership levels, a lot of travel, you know, the rat race, if you, if you will, in air quotes, to say, I, I've got to think about a different quality of life. I've reprioritized, there's another re for you, I've reprioritized what's important. So that is really the, at the foundational level, that's what, what I see and what I know is driving some of this, you know, people going to different places is they've reconsidered what's most important in their life right now. And that's key because when I started this pand uh, the podcast, right at the beginning of the pandemic, obviously we were thinking it wouldn't last very long. Our goal was to have the podcast about 35 to 45 minutes 
which is the average commute in the United States pre-pandemic. Right. Okay. And then I, I know some people who had a commute of an hour and a half to two hours on a daily basis, commuting from Southern Pennsylvania to uh, Washington, D.C., just crazy times of commutes. And now they're able to stay at home and have a better quality of life. So that, I think that's, I think you've hit the nail on the head there about some people. There are others though, that the stress of their job, food service in one example that it comes to mind, you know, some of these folks have not been paid very well and they work very, very hard. And now all of a sudden they're realizing, Hey, again, it's back to quality of life. So what are industries like food service to do? What are those areas to try and do around that right now? Well, uh, back to the reimagine. And it's funny when you said food service, the image that popped up into my mind was one you may have seen and your listeners may have seen also. This was, this was in 2021. It was of a Burger King franchise. And the sign out front was, was changed by the employees that said, we're closed because we all quit. All of the employees rallied, rallied together and they all quit that franchise at the same time. And that was, you know, you, you might remember this. Some of your listeners may or may not, but, you know, the old, uh, the old song, and there was a movie about it called Take This Job and Shove It. Uh, <laughs> it's a little, yeah, right. I mean, it's, it's, a little bit of, it's a little bit of that, you know, that people are going, it's not worth it. I'm not putting up with this. So your question is, what are employers to do? Well, one is really reimagine what does it take to attract, to retain, and to grow your people in a way that aligns with your business goals and strategies and delivers compelling value to your customers. And so I've done, you know, and our team here has done work in the banking industry for years. And some of what we learned way, way, way back, you know, 15 plus years ago, when we maybe first started working with some financial institutions, was that the tellers, and, you know, who knows how long tellers will even be around in banks, you know, depending on that, that model. But, you know, just using this example, tellers are the ones who are, were closest to the customers. They had the most frequent interaction. They had the most opportunity to deliver great experiences, to potentially upsell. And they were consistently the lowest paid and lowest appreciated employees in the bank. Yep. And this one institution that we worked with, we helped them rethink this. And it wasn't just about compensation. It was about appreciation, connection, having people feel you know, seen and heard and valued. And so you know, my encouragement is for, for businesses to really think about what do people value and then how can you deliver that to them in a better way? That's the way that places like food services are going to change the dynamic of people going, the heck with this, it's not worth it. That's where they start. Yeah. Interesting. You talked about tellers. That was one of the first jobs I ever had in life was a nighttime drive-in teller while, working, while going to college. Yeah. So, uh, oh yeah. And it's interesting because you're, you're spot on because they had the most upfront interactions. And if you look at hospitals, healthcare, a lot of the same thing. Uh, some of those frontline workers, and I'm not actually talking about the nursing staff, although that's a huge part of it, but there's other people that have that frontline interactive uh, actions with patients in a hospital or any healthcare facility, and often they're not the highest paid. So it comes back to recognition and something um, that was said by Southwest Airlines years ago, I believe Herb Kelleher actually said it. He says, our number one customer is not our customer. Our number one customer is our employee. 
Yeah. When we take care of our employee, they in turn will take care of our customers. And I thought that was such a profound statement. Absolutely. So people are resigning. Where are they landing? Well, there's a, there's a few things that we've seen. One is they are going to different places. I'm going to talk a little bit about the hierarchy of what's important to people and why they're making the choices that they make. Good. In other cases, you know, we're seeing a, you know, a, a bit of a burst in the um, solopreneur, the freelancer, you know, people who are saying, I just want to control everything. Now, there'll be some downstream impact to this. We'll see, you know, does that play out? Does it stay that way? I, I'm not really sure. But, you know, people are hanging up their own shingles and they're doing a yeah. lot of their starting their own businesses. That's one place. When yeah, the they, side you, hustles becoming the main hustle. Yeah. Well, and there, you know, it was probably like five plus years ago that it was predicted by 2030, if I'm remembering correctly, that 40 plus percent of the workforce was going to be freelancers or gig economists, you know, people who had multiple, multiple side hustles, as you, as you say. And so, you know, the companies who, who have this hard stance that say, you can't moonlight, you're, you're all here or you're not here at all. That needs to be reimagined also because the value and values that individuals have that has, that has changed. Now for people who aren't doing the side hustle as the main hustle and are going somewhere else, Here's just some interesting data. And this came out from a recent MIT Sloan study because people put a lot of emphasis on compensation and they say things like, oh, well, you know, well, look, people, you know, look at all this money that businesses are throwing out, signing bonuses, more money. They're being offered double pay. And, and while that's true, what the research shows is that there are things that are significantly more important to comp than compensation when people are making their choices. For example, Toxic culture has a 10 times, 10x importance versus compensation when people are choosing where they go. So I've, you know, we study this with organizations and when we talk to employees, they say things like, I would take the same or less money if I went to a place that had healthier benefits, whose values more aligned with mine. That's just one example. So the toxic culture piece is one, job insecurity and reorgs. People are, because most organizations don't do this really well, and they don't communicate what the plan is. And so when people don't know if there's a plan or what the plan is, they, they, get, they experience FUD, F-U-D, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Yeah. You know this. Oh, yes. And so when people are insecure about their future, they get itchy. And so 3.5 times as important as compensation is the insecurity and the reorg piece. Failure to recognize employee contributions. So feeling valued three times the weight of compensation. And so there's a lot that employers can do just by looking, listening, asking, and connecting with their people better because these things do outweigh compensation. And this, I mean, this study was of all sizes of companies, you know, a rich, a rich data set. So it's not like talk to five companies. I mean, this is material research that the folks at MIT Sloan did that show why people are making these choices and what they're doing. That's amazing. We've heard things like that over the years. And the study now puts hard science behind some of that. Because we've heard for years that culture, feeling value, chance for advancement and growth, um, all those things are more important. And I think this is now showing us the power behind that. So are organizations, well, let me ask you, let me just rephrase this. 
how valuable do you think and how valuable is um, an exit survey? And I don't just mean, why are you leaving, you know, a check the box form. I'm talking about a real meaty exit survey where somebody speaks with the person who's leaving. When they're, when they're done well, they're extremely valuable. And when I say done well, I mean, there's a couple of things that should, you know, need to be in place. One is if you've got a, a healthy culture, people are still going to leave. But if you've got one where, where trust is deep and rich and you have an HR executive, you know, as an example, because they typically do the exit interviews, then it's, it's, you're increasing the likelihood that people will be honest on the way out. The challenge with exit interviews oftentimes is people aren't honest or they just they don't engage or give you know as much depth because they don't think anything's going to be done with it anyway. And so, you know, just business leaders need to understand that. So to answer your question, exit interviews are critical. What's more critical, if I can even offer a plus one, is stay interviews. Stay interviews. So stay interviews are for the people who are currently employed to talk to them on a regular basis about why they're there, what they value, you know, um, what they appreciate, what the organization can do more of. Because I saw this a lot, you know, back in the health club days, I mentioned I was in that, in that industry. And when we would train our salespeople, our, you know, service people, retention was a very big deal in the health club business for us. Um, because people, you know, were, they were quitting the habit because they couldn't really adopt it exercise well and that's the whole another topic we could talk about another time because that's, that's still a whole another topic yeah um but you know so we train people that when a member would come in to quit how to have a conversation and maybe offer them a free personal training session or a free month on their membership to stay and give it another try the reality was what we found through our research was that when at the time that somebody came in to quit their membership they had actually made their mental decision six months previous it just took them that long to come in and quit. So the likelihood that we were gonna be able to save them was virtually nil. And it's the same thing with employees at exit interview, you know, they'd made up their mind, they're like, they're already checked out. And so the likelihood that you're gonna be able to turn them is low and that they'll really want to engage in giving you rich, robust, honest feedback. It's not, it's not great, especially if you don't have a really healthy culture. Right, so you said regular stay interviews. Am I, am I using your terms correctly? Yes. So let's, uh, the word re uh, regular, it can be a very, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Open mind. So how would you, how would you define regular? Is it weekly, monthly, quarterly? What? I, I, you know, what I've seen is on a quarterly basis, which aligns with having quarterly performance check-ins, like real performance check-ins against people's goals, their career aspirations, their development plans. It's good to drip in at least a couple of questions from a stay interview. And, and I will, after this conversation, I'll shoot you a list that maybe you can even put in the, the notes for the listeners, a okay. list of some of my favorite stay interview questions. Um, so your listeners can grab onto those, but just, just even peppering in a few of those on a quarterly basis to make sure that people understand that we take this seriously, we are interested. And then when they give us input, that they see us doing something with it. And in fact, even maybe include those people who say, gosh, I think it would be great if we did X to enroll them in the possibility of helping the organization do X. This way, it's not a, just a once a year thing. It's not you know, like super intermittent or random, what seems like randomly episodic. 
that it's a regular part of our culture that comes to life. Awesome. And I think that's great. And I know our listeners will look forward to that. I know I look forward to seeing some of those stay interview questions. So let's look at, I'm going to pick one industry now, but yet we can probably um, apply this to a lot of different industries. If we start looking at the nursing profession, mm. um, the, the number of healthcare professionals, nursing, uh, dental assistants, dental hygienists, anybody in that line of work that's got close activity is still in a pandemic timeframe. The number of nurses that have retired, okay, and burnout is setting in. Yeah. So there's a lot of things of that direction. What, where do we stand with burnout? I mean, people are just, they're fried. I mean, they're working more with less. I mean, it's an old adage, but it's more prevalent now. So what, what can companies, what can leaders, what can team leaders do to try and uh, combat burnout today? Yeah, the, your first question of where are we? And then you, you mentioned the word fried. I think that's accurate. The word that came to mind, I was going to say is crispy. That's where <laughs> we are. People are so burned out that they're, the, you know, they're like the crispiest French fry in the, in the bunch. So what can leaders do? Well, there's a, there's a few things, and I'll, I'll probably come back to this later in our conversation. But the first thing is understanding the power of connection, especially when you're talking about healthcare workers. Healthcare workers in general don't get into the field because they want to make a ton of money. That's not to say that they're terribly paid, although I, I would advocate that nurses are probably some of the most underpaid folks you know, in the world, especially right now. I mean, talk about heroes. And yeah, nurses and teachers. <sighs> Holy moly. Yeah, absolutely. And teachers as well. Um, but this piece around connection. So, so, you know, I'm operating under an assumption that people are getting into healthcare because they believe in a greater good, because they want to help society in a material way, because they care a heck of a lot about people and keeping them healthy and making them comfortable and keeping them safe. So, Let's just use that as an operating premise. If that's true, making sure that that is, you know, that that's on the top of their mind every day while they are truly going into battle. And I mean, you've seen some of the same pictures and videos I have over the past two years, just how worn out and, you know, seeing just even what's happening to people's faces with, you know, the masks and how tired they are and the shift work and all this, all this craziness truly that they, that they have been going through. First, it's about connection. So how do you do that? One level, connection to the work. What is it that we do? What is the purpose of our work? Let's remind ourselves with regularity, not like the Pledge of Allegiance, but let's remind ourselves why we do what we do, what we stand for as an institution, and why we're doing what we do in our individual roles. That's one thing that's important. Okay. Gallup wrote a book probably two years ago now, and still really important. It's called It's All About the Manager. It's the manager and the relationship connection between the manager and the frontline person. So that's the second level of connection that's critical is making sure that the manager knows, understands, sees, and feels their people, not literally feels their people, but, you know, like really yeah. understands them, what they're about, what's important to them, who they are as a person. Um, and some people say, well, Andrew, are you, I mean, this sounds like a little, are you saying we've got to be psychologists and psychiatrists? And the answer is, not from a degree standpoint, but you've, yeah, this is about peopleology, folks. You really, really need to understand your people. So that's, that's the next level of connection is the manager to the employee. The third one that is very rarely talked about, but is 
absolutely critical is connection to colleagues, connection to peers. So Greg, if, you know, as your listeners are listening to this, I really want to say this in a way that it's, you know, that it's heard well, which is shining a light on the amazing things. Like I could ask, as you could, any, any leader in healthcare today and say, how many stories of absolute heroism have occurred over the past two or three years in your hospital, your healthcare system, your dental office, whatever, like how many times has a person in your organization done something that's been so remarkable that you would want others to know about it? And they, they all say the same thing. Oh my God, I can't even count that high. It happens every day. The next question is, so how often do people know about those things? And they go, well, not very often at all. Right. And so, you know, we can really form connection. People stay at work because they feel connected not only to the work and not only to their boss, but also to their community. This is about building connection and building a community. And then the fourth that I would, you know, that I would highlight here is connection to self and really helping people understand, again, what's important to them in their life. Um, what are their priorities? What are their goals? What are their aims? Not just in work, but also personally. And if there's ways that we as leaders can help that come to life more through their work, or at least understand it. Um, these are things that help keep people that should be kept, uh, which I know probably seeds a bunch of other things we could talk about, but I say that intentionally, keep people who should be kept. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's Jim Collins, of course, in his book, Good to Great says, get the right people on the bus, get them in the right seats, um, and then get the wrong ones off the bus. Because some people, while they may not be right for your organization, it's not that they're bad people they may fit well on somebody else's bus. Absolutely. And that, that's so key. Uh, communicating. Um, what about, I want to throw a curveball at you here if I can. What about managing up? Yeah. Um, correlation, communicating with your boss. How important is that today? Uh, it's, it is essential. It is absolutely essential. Yeah, it's not talked about very often, is it? No. And, and you know, I... I will say the notion of managing up is so important and in the healthiest and highest performing cultures. And by high performing, I mean ones that are categorized by learning, development, growth, curiosity, innovation, not just like a drive to hit numbers. That's not what I'm talking about when I say high performance. In the healthiest and highest performing cultures, there is this, this environment of 360 degrees of conversation, of feedback, of reverse mentoring, of coaching. And, and so leaders actively seek feedback. It's not the kind of artificial scenario where the leader goes, my door is always open. You know where to find me. Send me an email anytime you want. That, that's just lip service. I mean, where they really engage and where they, where they actively seek out from their people how they as leaders and how the organization can be doing better. Um, the challenge, one of the challenges that leaders need to deal with is just, you know, old school legacy hierarchy, um, stayed principles. It's really scary for most employees to give feedback to their bosses. There is massive fear of retribution, of being marginalized, of this impacting their security, of impacting their performance review and their raise. I mean, it's, there is a, there is a tangible and visceral fear of folks when it comes to managing up. So it's critical and it's hard in a lot of organizations because of the culture that exists. So as a leader, as a senior leader, doesn't matter. What can I do to ensure that 
people feel comfortable in giving me feedback. Because bottom line, there is no doubt that there's nobody that knows everything today. And a secure leader, I think, um, uh, Stockdale, Admiral Stockdale said, you know, we have to be able to empower others and only secure leaders can actually give power to others. And that's, that's such a powerful statement when you look at that. Um, So what can I do? What can I say? What can I, how can I assure Andrew that, you know, you're on my team, I may be your boss. What can I say to you that's going to let you feel good about telling me I screwed up? Yeah, uh, a few things that, you know, that leaders can do and your listeners can, can put into play. One starts with a belief set. So I don't know how to give this to folks other than to just share it and then people can take it and put it to use in a way that's useful to them. And that is you as a leader have to have a fundamental belief that you don't know it all, that you actually need help. You need to have this humble servant leadership attitude that others, including Collins, um, who you referenced earlier, talk about Mm -hmm. level five leadership, servant leadership. You really got to believe that you need your people to help you, you know, move where the organization needs to go. So that's a belief structure that comes from does that too. Yeah. Right. So, so let's assume that exists because otherwise it's just going to see if that doesn't exist, people will see right through that artificial, right. And just, they just won't believe it. It'll feel icky, slimy, like, you know, just not genuine. Um, But that being said, one of the things that's really can be really useful is a process that's, you know, 360 degree reviews. So actually having leaders get reviewed by their peers and their direct reports, getting input back, and then actually sharing back some of what was said. So if I got my 360 review, there might be some things that are highlighted that I do well, that people want to reinforce that I keep doing. And there's probably going to be some things that people will say, I wish you did less of this, more of this, or just stop doing this at all. And me sharing that, like here's three to five things, not 10, just three to five things that I'm really going to concentrate on to be better this year. And team, I need your help. When you see me doing this, please check me on it. Please raise it to my visibility. Please mention it to me. So open the invitation by number one, letting them know that you are focusing on things and what those things are. Two, make it an active dialogue. Share back with your direct reports what you're working on, the progress that you're seeing, and ask them what they're seeing. Three is, you know, not at the end of every meeting, but in projects and from time to time, ask people, what am I doing that's helping you move forward in the ways that are important to you? What am I doing that's getting in your way? What do you need me to do differently? Just make it, again, an active conversation. Doing that. Doesn't that make the leader vulnerable? Absolutely. Why do I want to do that? Well, we can cite, I know you, you can as well as I can, any number of studies that talk about the power of vulnerability, that it actually draws people to you. You know, old school, hierarchically command and control, dictatorial kind of environments, people would say vulnerability is bad. Vulnerability is weak. And one of my favorite speakers, thought leaders, authors, Brene Brown, talks a lot about the power of vulnerability. Um, Adam Grant does as well. And I, I believe this. I believe this for many, many years, is that when you open up, it shows a human side of you. It shows that you're not a machine. You're not infallible. It's like the old Rocky IV movie when Rocky hits Ivan Drago and he actually cuts him and he's like, look, 
he's actually a man. He's not a machine. You know, it's, it's, and it's not about that he's weak. It's just, we all need to realize that we're all human. We're all in this together and we need each other if we're really going to build these amazing cultures where people can be and do their very best every day. And what I've seen is those who do not allow themselves to be vulnerable tend to be the most insecure in their position. And of course, Patrick Lencioni in the five dysfunctions of a team really focuses in on vulnerability powers and trying to build that because we've got to have that level of vulnerability with everybody, not just from a leader down, but between everybody, everybody needs to show their vulnerabilities. Yes. And that's powerful. I love that. So as we start to look at it, there are things that leaders can do, things that have changed. I've, I've been saying lately that the challenges for a leader today are really no different than they were five years ago. They're just greatly amplified because of the pandemic. And I think that's really key. So is there something that you can say to a leader today? And again, we're talking frontline leaders of you know, maybe manufacturing, all the way through. So think about our wide range of audiences here, including the CEOs. What should leaders be, and I'm going to use the term doubling down, what should they double down on right now that can really help ensure success moving forward in the next six to nine months? I'm going to, I'm going to make this a trifecta and roll it into one. Okay. Empathy, connection, and letting go. These things are interrelated. So doubling down on empathy, really feeling, hearing, and understanding their people and fostering a culture of connection. And when I say letting go, what I mean is letting go of knowing and, and remembering the childlike curiosity that all of us had when we, were, when we were little babies and little kids. We just couldn't get enough of the world. And bringing that kind of curiosity back through empathy and connection is really a powerful thing that I would say, you know, I push all my chips in on this one from a double down on that, on that combination. If leaders can really be curious, not be knowers, but really be learners again, be inquisitive, be curious and connect with their people to understand how they and we can thrive better together. It's a home run. That's, that's so powerful. That's so powerful is understanding. I did a training program a number of years ago. And uh, I had someone who had just retired from the military in this program. And the evaluation afterwards, because we talked about empathy, we talked about doing things that way in a leadership capacity. And the evaluation said, whatever happened to leading from the stick? He said, this leading from a carrot is just a go from there. Needless to say, we need, we need a little bit of both. And we've got to be empathetic. We've got to know that people are human and the more we are allow ourselves to be open and vulnerable. Now, that doesn't mean that we're weak. That does not mean we're weak. Vulnerability is not a weakness. Vulnerability can actually be a strength. So one of the, you talked about communication. One of the things one of my clients say they're doing, and I want to get your pick on some of this as well, is they have set up um, a Calendly. Now, for those who are not familiar with Calendly, it's Calendly, it's hard to say that word, .com. And that's how I set up my appointments and everything of that nature today. But they have set it up for an internal link 
so that their people can just simply go to, you know, Bob's Calendly page and say, okay, he's got 15 minutes here. I want to be able to communicate with him on that. And that's the whole thing that we're looking at is what can I do? How can I connect with him? And it's a 15 minute window. All it is, is just jumping in there and getting in and coming in in a zoom meeting or whatever, but that allows the communication. So that's keeping the communication going. My question is what else are you seeing? What else is an idea that can work there? Um, I have one, th- so I'll, I'll answer that. And I'm going to comment on what you just said as a bridge to the answer. I love the use of Calendly so that people can book time. And I would be curious, not, I'm not asking you to answer this now, just longitudinally, I'd be curious how many people, what kind of uptick the folks who are doing that actually see of their people booking time with them. I hope it would increase. I think it's a great practice. What would give them acceleration is for that leader to share back in some kind of format or forum, hey, over the last 30 days, here's the kinds of things I've learned from people who have booked this time on my calendar. I think that would that would take that practice and make it make mm-hmm. it even better. Now, some people- of those things, by the way, um, may be more confidential when they book these appointments. So that, obviously we don't want to share that. No, definitely not. Um, other things that I'm seeing and that I would encourage your listeners and leaders to do, pulse surveys. So annual employee engagement surveys, they're not a thing of the past. They're still useful. We still do them for our clients. But, it, but doing only that is like going to your physician and getting your blood pressure checked and the doc going, hey, your blood pressure is X over Y, and here's the food regimen you should have for the next year, and then not modifying that at all for the next 12 months. Well, that doesn't make any sense, right? Because your body, your system, your health changes. So pulse surveys, even as frequently as weekly, is a great practice. And the pulse survey questions could just be one question and asking people that these are things you want to benchmark and track progress on. So you think about organizationally, what are the indicators that we would like to see move that we believe will advance our culture, increase our desired retention, and help us grow our business and ask things that are aligned to that. So you really get a sense along the way, are we making progress? So you can make more agile changes okay. along the way. Um, that's now, that's a, a pulse survey. Should it be the same question every week or vary them up? Vary the, vary the questions. Okay. Okay. That, that's good. Cause I think if it's the same question. People are just going to get bored with it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's one thing. A second thing is, you know, the power of stories, you know, life is storytelling. We're all storytellers. People sometimes say, I don't have any great stories or I stink at storytelling. And, and I know neither of those things are true. Everybody's got stories and everybody's an effective storyteller because we do it all the time. Finding a way to bring stories to life in the organization, shining a light on new employees that have come in, people who have had impact, stories of heroism, you know, that, you know, where we've, where we've actually changed lives, um, subject matter expertise, best practices, things like this are easy to do. And, and, and sharing these stories through a video-based platform I think puts this you know, on amplification because video truly is one of the top ways that people are consuming information and learning. And so using stories and actually having your colleagues see people since they're not co-located is also very powerful. Yeah, I mean, the power of video is absolutely amazing uh, in understanding that today. And with technology, it's, it's incredible. I want to wrap things up here, but I just, I, mean, I want to get your take on What's your perspective on where we're going 
and you've got a book out called Thrive. So I want to talk a little bit about your book, but where do you see this going in the next six, eight, nine, 12 months? Well, I'm going to ask a clarifying question because I could go a lot of places with this. When you say this, where is this going? Give me a little more direction. Business in general, leaders in general, how, how can we change this curve that is like hitting a critical mass right now of change? I mean, it's just changing so much. Where is it going? I mean, are we going to continue this incredible speed? Uh, I'm not talking about the economy. We're talking the human behavior. I mean, it's changing and it's changing fast. Well, I, so yes is my answer to change. Change is going to continue happening. And I think the pace is only going to hasten. And it's going to do that likely because of the advent of more emerging technologies, virtual worlds, artificial intelligence, metaverse, some of the things you referenced earlier in the call today, I think are accelerators. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and we're also seeing a continued increase in merger and acquisition activity. I don't know that that's going to slow down anytime soon. The outlook shows that, you know, for 2022, that's probably going to continue and maybe even increase. Now, human, human ability to adapt is something that has never advanced at the pace of technology change. So technology changes like a hockey stick curve and human adaptability, you know, is more like a, you know, a, a line. So there's a big gap. So I do think. Oh, leaders, wow. That is one of the best analogies I've ever heard of in explaining that. You're so right on that. Yeah. Thomas, Thomas Friedman in, um, in one of his earlier books, uh, you know, I think it might've been the world is flat. I don't remember exactly which book, but he, you know, that was the first time that I had seen it. And that was years ago. And the, and the pace of change has only increased. So for leaders, I think, you know, they, they need to think about how they can blend the advances of technology and also you know, tap into human ingenuity, human creativity, human innovation to help us not just keep up with the pace of change, but to really make sure that we are moving at a pace that allows us to evolve, to grow, and to create and capture value organizationally and societally. I think that's, a, that's an imperative over the next, you know, nine to 12 months. So talk to me about the book Thrive. So Thrive, uh, you know, when we met uh, last Thrive had just come out on the market. So uh, we just passed the one-year mark. Um, I wrote the book with my my co-author, Paul Elliott, and we really wanted to give leaders an actionable blueprint, a guide to build a high-performing culture, Um, one that is um, defined by a lot of the things that we've talked about today. And Paul and I combined have over 65 years of experience in working with organizations in in defining and building high-performance systems. And we said... We feel really good about the work that we've done in the hundreds of companies we've impacted, but we were not operating at scale. And we wanted to get what we know and what we've done as business leaders and practitioners out into the world. So we wrote this book, this manifesto, this blueprint, this guide. We published it so that any leader who read it could understand what are the fundamental elements of building a high performance culture. So understand it. And then two, have tools and templates and practices and protocols and proven things that they can actually put in place in their organizations. So that's why we wrote the book. And since it's come out, we've been, I say this with all pride and not you know, boastfulness, it's been a multiple time bestseller in categories like organizational change, leadership, coaching, mentorship. I mean, the world has received it very, very well. I couldn't be more proud. And, mm-hmm. and I know there's still more work to do. So I want to make sure everybody understands this book is not just for the C-suite. Nope. 
This book is not just for the frontline manager. This book is for everybody, including those who may not be in a management role. Am I right? Absolutely. We, uh, we introduced this into the uh, curriculum and some of the classes I teach at the University of Baltimore here in Maryland in the MBA program, especially in you know, the leadership courses and the capstone business strategy courses. And you've got a lot of folks who are individual contributors who aspire to be great leaders. And so this teaches them how, what do you need to know and how do you do it if you want to be a great leader? Therein lies the question, if you want to be a great leader. Right. Not everybody does. No, no. And it goes back. I encourage people to go and read the uh, Jim Collins book, Good to Great, talking about, you know, the level five levels of leadership and uh, Alan Wurzel being a, a level five leader. And that's, that's powerful because I would say 99% of the population has no idea who Alan Wurzel was. Yes. So I'm not going to tell them. I want to leave it in there so they have to go look it up. I love it. So, uh, Andrew, it's been a privilege to have you on the show again. Um, we can keep going on this. This is a topic that's near and dear to my heart, as I know it is yours. The power of culture is, is incredible. Uh, I own the domain name cultureiscore.com, and it's so much power behind understanding what culture is. And we all have a culture in our organizations. It's how do we make sure it's the right culture? Amen. And we're operating from that. Thank you once again. If people want to reach out to you, what's the best way to find you and get in touch with you? LinkedIn is always an easy way. My handle is A Friedman Thrive. Um, easy to find there. I'll be happy to accept connection requests from your listeners. Or, you know, if people just want some help and you know, want to ask me a question, they can shoot me a note and I'm happy to engage anybody that listens to what you're doing and, and you know, what you're espousing. Um, I certainly believe in it. I'd love to help them. I want to make sure everybody understands the spelling of your last name. So if you would. F-R-E-E-D-M-A-N. Right. So it's, I'll make sure everybody understood that because there's multiple spellings of that. one. Just like when I say Greg, it's G-R-E-G-G. -G. So it's, uh, we've got to go there. You know, folks, once a week with the Teamwork Advantage, you, we share skills, and Andrew has definitely done that with us today, that you can act on immediately, and he shared several of those with us. You know, until next week, remember, having a good day is just being average. When you listen to the Teamwork Advantage, we know that you are not average. So go make today an excellent and exceptional day. Bye-bye. This has been the Teamwork Advantage with Greg Gregory. To learn more about how Greg can help your organization develop a powerful winning culture, visit teamsrock.com. That's T-E-A-M-S-R-O-C-K.com. Be sure to join Greg next week when he interviews another exciting and powerful thought leader on the Teamwork Advantage. Until then, as Greg says, make sure you have a great week because a good week is just being average.